0: you're listening to the conversations speaking with podcast this is a discussion between the university of new south wales dr darren saunders and dr ben goldacre
1: author of the books bad science and bad pharma Dr. Goldacre is currently on Australia for a series of talks on his work and writing. I'm joined by Ben Goldacre, epidemiologist, writer, broadcaster. And um, the most
0: tired man in the world. Yeah,
1: you look at it. <laughs> nerd evangelist, I believe you uh,
0: And it. nerd evangelist,
1: yeah, yeah. I want to start there, actually. You're very vocal, very out-in-the-public face of slaying bad science, if yeah. you like. What got you on that path?
0: Uh. Well, as you are yourself a nerd, you yeah. will know that when you read newspapers or look at how politicians describe science, it all just seems wrong. It's either dumbed down or it's just completely upside down. Yeah. And so I got annoyed and frustrated, so I picked up the phone to The Guardian one day, rang the switchboard number that's on the letters page, not really knowing how journalism worked, asked to speak to the science editor, told her what I'd like to write and she said, okay, send me something by Thursday. I love it. And and I carried on after that. um, Like, I started writing a weekly column pretty much straight away.
1: Yeah, I love the immediacy of writing for the media as opposed to writing academic papers. I find that a little bit refreshing.
0: Yeah, although I think it's all part of the same game and the same project Mm -hmm. and actually I don't regard... uh, well, discourse is such a terrible word, isn't it? But I don't I don't regard the quality of, of discourse in academic journals as being necessarily superior to that at the better ends of mainstream media. I think they're both overlapping. I think there's stuff, especially kind of commentary pieces in academic journals, which are so thin and partial yeah. that you just think, how, how did that get yeah. through,
1: you know? But there's a lot of pushback from academics who think, you know, there's a lot of academics don't think scientists should be out there doing that sort of stuff. And there's a there's an article in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago, penned by someone anonymous, saying that really real anonymous. scientists don't do social media, real scientists don't do television.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of that is just policing the perimeters of the ivory tower. Um, I mean, especially if you look at the kind of, the, the crossover between evidence and policy. So, stuff like, for example, um, the campaign to get all trials reported. Yep. I see better quality summaries of the evidence and arguments about how to fix it and what policy shifts are necessary and how to implement those, I see much better stuff on blogs and social media than I do a lot of the time in in academic journals, much more thoughtful. And also actually with our more recent stuff like the Compare Trials Project where we've been um, going out and trying to correct the record on trials which are no holds barred, black and white, misreported in the top five journals. The way that some of those journals have responded to our correction letters is incredibly revealing and really shows that, I mean, frankly, the the behaviour we've seen from some journals has not been any different from what you'd see on the blog of a homeopath silencing critical comments and claiming that night is day and black is white. It's a very, very strange thing. So actually, I think, you know, one of the more interesting things about widening access to academic papers and widening access to the previously privileged world of, of professional scientific discussion is actually, it's not that the emperor wears no clothes, it's that some of the emperors haven't got very many clothes on and that's a really powerful and interesting thing and I think the shonkier end of real professional science is right to feel anxious about that and I'm unsurprised to see them fighting back sometimes in quite dirty terms.
1: Well, they don't, they don't like having the, the light on them. I mean, there, there was an editorial in the New England Journal a few weeks ago of people calling people that wanted open access to clinical trials data data parasites. Well, so that was an extraordinary
0: episode, actually, because um, so I don't know if anybody who's listening would know, know the background, but the Compare Trials Project is something that we set up in Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the very end of last year. And there's this big problem. Everybody knows about p-hacking and the reproducibility crisis. So, lots and lots and lots of um, evidence now that scientific research published in in big respected academic journals is actually misreported, a biased, partial picture. Trials aren't reported properly. They, you know, people fail to report the method of allocation concealment, which is very nerdy and boring, but they're very important. People fail to report their pre-specified outcomes correctly, which means that they might be cherry-picking, and even if they're not actually cherry-picking, by failing to report their pre-specified outcomes correctly, they are they are creating a kind of culture of permissiveness around correct outcome reporting, which gives cover to people who really are deliberately exaggerating their findings. So we set out to correct the record prospectively. Mm-hmm. So there's a big field now of research about research, where people will, for example, publish papers, often in high-impact journals, saying, hey, we looked, and 65% of all trials reported in the big five journals had some kind of discrepancy between the pre-specified and reported outcomes. What we did was, instead of publishing an anonymized overall figure for how many problems there were, we did something which I think has been experienced as more aggressive. Instead of retrospectively publishing an overall figure of how many trials were misreported, we set up a a real-time project to check every trial published in New England Journal of Medicine, JANA, Lancet, BMJ, live as they were published, spot the discrepancies by comparing the pre-specified outcomes in the protocol or the registry against the ones that were reported, and where there were discrepancies, sending a correction letter to the journal saying, hey, here's our full data sheet, all of our raw data is freely available, And we can see that this trial, simple black and white matter, misreported its pre-specified outcomes. And every single journal involved had signed up to the CONSORT guidelines, which say we will make sure that all pre-specified outcomes are correctly reported. So, for anybody who's listening who doesn't, who can't, his eyes glaze over. Yeah. The bottom line is there's a right and a wrong way of reporting a clinical trial. Yeah. It really matters, and there's this kind of there's a, a set of guidelines which is the gold standard, best practice, and all of the big journals had signed up to those. So, people reading the journals would have expected that this was being policed. But in reality, we know it's not. Sure. Yeah, so whole studies go missing in action yeah. as well. But this was this is the kind of next level up from that of selective reporting yeah. within studies. Yeah. But anyway, so what what was really fascinating about all of that to me was how the journals behaved really, really interestingly. And I think most people would say badly mm. in some cases. But you mentioned New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah. So with New England Journal of Medicine, first of all, they sent back uh, responses after they'd got the first Half a dozen correction letters saying, Look, we don't require people to follow the consort guidelines, and we often ask people to report outcomes that weren't pre specified. So, up front, people have been saying forever, like, you know, we've we've found that a certain percentage of trials in Nejum don't correctly report their pre specified outcomes. It's only when you actually hold people's feet to the fire, pin them down, send in correction letters force them to either print them or reject them and give a reason that you find out what's driving it Mm. and i don't you know as far as i'm aware nobody even knew that Nejim had just decided despite previously endorsing consul despite being publicly listed on the consul website as being one of the gold standard reporters actually they come out and they say no we don't care but even more amazingly than that all of our raw days were shared as we went so everybody could see for every trial we sent a correction letter on we listed the pre-specified outcomes, then we listed whether we could find them in the paper or not. We listed all of the new non-pre-specified outcomes that were reported without declaring that they were novel. NEGEM never came back to us and said, We think you've made mistakes. But they were quietly and covertly sending these documents to journalists who were writing about the Compare Trials project saying, Hey, these people got it wrong. Now, this is where it becomes relevant to the data parasites editorial. Mm-hmm. They sent this document to people where they said we found six errors in the compare trials teams coding of errors in one trial. To be clear the compare project isn't just me it's yeah. my friend Carl Hennigan, <clears throat> professor yeah. of evidence-based medicine in the same department that I work in in Oxford, Kamal Matani is another senior clinical research funding, you know serious yeah, yeah. people with a, with a track record. They sent around this document saying here are, s- here are six errors in their coding of one trial. Now Nejin were wrong on every single one of those six points. And this isn't a matter of opinion, this is black and white, and we've posted all the documentation to demonstrate this online. Absolutely black and white, wrong. So they'd accessed our underlying raw data, they'd attempted to use it to rubbish us, but in the course of doing so, um, they had either made mistakes, or at best, I suppose, we might say these were motivated misunderstandings. At the same time, they were publishing this Data Parasites editorial. Now, the argument of the Data Parasites editorial was... If you share your underlying raw data from your project, then people with a vested interest or who don't properly understand your data will access it and use it to mischievously undermine you. And at the time, people were saying, well, I've never come across anybody doing that. That doesn't really seriously happen in the world of science. Well, actually, I I used to agree, but I would have to say pretty much the only time I've come across serious professional people from the world of science doing that it was actually the editors of the New England Journal of Medicine themselves with the compare trials data, and I think that is an extraordinary situation to have come to pass. And to put that in a kind of broader context, um, you know, because in the past I've also written about the cheaper and seedier side of the misuse of science, the anti-vaccination conspiracy yeah, theory. Yeah, I so want to come to that and a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, when people say, "Guys, isn't it, isn't it terrible and stupid that these people believe all these stupid things about vaccines and these stupid things about quack pills?" I actually think you can draw a perfect connection between the behaviour of NEDGEM in response to our correction letters and the popularity of anti-vaccination conspiracy theories because the public know that something's not right. They know that things aren't working quite as advertised. We are throwing away public trust in science that has been hard-earned and we're throwing it away fast in an era of Greater transparency, greater public access to knowledge and understanding.
1: So that that's an interesting point, right? The, these debates, if you like, for <laughs> want of a better word, or controversies, are playing out in a public sphere more than they ever have. And in some ways, that undermines the message of trying to get the right message out there for people who are trying to make decisions based on this stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, but then the question is, what's the right message? Because I've always been very, very suspicious. I've always been very um, cautious about promoting the idea that we should say, well, all quackery is stupid and all mainstream Mm -hmm. medicine is fantastic. I mean, that's always struck me as being really a very crass... Well, it doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. Well, I mean, overall, I think mainstream medicine is clearly a better bet. It's pretty pretty uncommon that there are treatments on the market which are actively worse than useless, although it it does happen. And the main problem with the shortcomings in in the whole ecosystem of evidence-based medicine is really waste, so lots of blind alleys because of publication bias, because of unflattering findings not being published. And then, secondly, um, distortions around relative effectiveness. So I think people are often misled into prescribing or, or accepting the second, third or fourth best drug in a class of drugs yes. because of distorted evidence or absent evidence. Like it's fairly uncommon that they have actual harm inflicted on them. But then you come down to, well, you know, what's the ambition of modern medicine? Is it to be better than nothing? Or is it to be the best currently available treatment at the same price point? In which case, we're really failing well, we, and we really need to perfect this stuff because every time we don't practice medicine as perfectly as we possibly could do, we expose people to avoiding, avoidable suffering. Yeah. And we practice an awful lot of medicine, right? Like, our failure to do it perfectly every time costs lives. And those are lives which it's difficult to put a face to. It's difficult to have a kind of moving documentary with a, you know, the deep-bass synthesizer tone. A little but little that's little the way, little way to tell the story, though. though.
1: I mean, that's the way to get people's attention, right? It's to have a, a narrative or a story around it. It's not always possible. So I think that's right. And partly sanctimoniously, partly passive-aggressive,
0: and partly... Um, just because I only do this stuff because it pleases me, so I only talk about the stuff I want to talk about. I've always deliberately avoided stories about individual people being harmed, and I've always mm-hmm as far as I can, deliberately avoided stories about individual treatments because I'm really only interested in talking about principles and structures and how do you know if something's good for you or bad for you? What are the parts of the whole ecosystem of
1: how we find out what's good and bad that are broken? Is it about helping people understand uncertainty and about helping people understand relative risk? Because that's the thing that even a lot of scientists have trouble with is is quantifying risk and weighing risk of different things. And you know we kind of demand that people take a position and then we we crucify them if they change their minds. So is it About making uncertainty okay and making it okay for people to change a position. So uncertainty is a really interesting
0: thing in medicine because often people want there to be a right or wrong answer about whether this drug is good or bad. But actually, different people presented with exactly the same information as patients will make completely different choices. So really, it's about communicating the evidence as cleanly and clearly as possible to patients so that they can make the choice for themselves if that's what they want to do. I mean, obviously actually there are plenty of patients who when you try and help them make an informed choice will look at you like you're mad or incompetent and go well you're the doctor, come yeah. on you choose, and you go okay fine if that's what you want then we can do that but you see that the enormous variation in choices that individuals make at the really obvious levels of chemotherapy but also for things like statins so to take the example of chemotherapy not only will different people make different decisions about exactly the same offer but actually the same person at different points of their life will make different decisions So. Conversations about chemotherapy often go, well, look, we've got this treatment, and it, it'll increase your chances of surviving the next 12 months by about 40%. Yeah. But that comes at a cost. You'll have more opportunistic infections. Your hair will fall out. You'll have quite a lot of pain and nausea and diarrhoea. So, you know, you, you can make your own choice. Now, some people will say, look, I do not have a death wish, but I have had a very good life couldn't have been happier and you know right now my family are all living in the same town I'm okay you know I don't want those extra four months on average I want to live but that trade-off of living a bit longer a bit more miserably that's not for me right now whereas other people will say look maybe at any other time I wouldn't but my granddaughter is 16 months old And it would mean the world to me for her to be able to remember me, for me to be able to see her, speak sentences. And I would tolerate any amount of discomfort to live through that. And what a lot of
1: people see is an incremental shift in a survival curve. You know, six months can mean a lot of difference, right? It can mean seeing another Christmas with your family or something like that.
0: Yeah, and and it means different things to different people at different times. And so that's why we have to give people the best information that we possibly can, because it's not just about drugs being good or bad or right or Mm. wrong for a particular patient, because patients have different decision matrices. People have different personal preferences in the way that they weigh up strengths and benefits. And I think you see exactly the same thing with statins. The whole deal with statins is a really... I mean, it's a microcosm for the weirdness of and the, and the shortcomings of medicine in so many different ways, yep. and particularly fascinating because it's the single most commonly prescribed class of drug in the whole of the developed world. Oh, so, right.
1: debates ago. played out in a quite a dramatic fashion in Australia, actually. In yeah, Australia.
0: yeah, no, no, I know, and, the, and that documentary that was really very childish, I think, mm. I mean, it was, a silly, mm. it was a silly, silly documentary. Although, actually, I think one thing that's interesting about what drives those kinds of documentaries and makes them attractive is it reveals something about how we haven't communicated on statins, clearly enough to patients, is that the benefits of statins are tiny, but very real. There's actually pretty good cross-sectional survey data. In fact, there's a fantastic study done on the streets of uh, Paddington in London, just outside St. Mary's Hospital, where they went out, interviewed 380 people of every different shape, color, and size, which means sex, ethnic origin, and and said to them, okay, here is a hypothetical, long-term preventive treatment. It has no side effects." And they zeroed in with various different questions to find out what kind of longevity benefit would you require for it to be worth your while to take this preventive treatment every day. So this is a model for blood pressure treatments and and cholesterol-lowering treatments with modest benefits. And what was interesting was not the average benefit, but the range. Because there are some people who say, look, even if it's five years, I don't care, I don't want to take a pill every day, I don't want to feel medicalised, I don't want to feel like a patient. For whatever kind of cultural or ideological reasons, or just... You know, people discount the future, which is the big problem with climate change. Mm-hmm. So they go, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I, I don't even understand what five years longevity means yeah. in 40 years down the line. Other people say, Jesus, if it's two months, just give it to me, me. right now. Yeah. I'll take it. I am fully in the in the in the latter camp. Right, I am appalled by death. I don't understand why we're not all running up to each other in the street, clutching each other by the upper arm, and going did you know we're all, this all ends, and we die. And the party carries on with Alice, and our children will be sad, because, you know, I don't understand why this isn't, like, the first topic of conversation, the moment you make, you know, we just met, we shook hands. I don't understand why we didn't go, ah, did you know we all <laughs> die? Right, it appalls me, and oh, you could chop off all of my limbs, I could be blind and deaf and in pain and agony and do not turn the machine off, just leave me with Radio 4 playing (laughs) and a bone conduction device so I can hear it in my head and I'm okay, I
1: want (laughs) to live. But others don't feel that way.
0: Other people don't feel that way and I fully respect and understand that and I'm happy for them to act on that. And actually a lot of the battles you see over statins uh, between a warring of doctors who on the one side say you'd be an idiot not to take these drugs. All you have to do is take a pill every day, and it prevents two deaths out of 100 people over 10 years. And the other camp They don't disagree on the numbers. They disagree on the, on the interpretation. So they say, you'd have to be an idiot to take these drugs. 98 out of 100 people who take them don't get any benefit from them. What, a, what kind of crazy, stupid drug is that? Now, the reality is, if you give people that offer, different people will make their own informed choice about where they stand. Now, I continue to find it, A fascinating window into how badly we have communicated Mm. the genuine but modest scale of the benefits from statins. You can still get a lot of attention in mainstream media by rocking up and going, did you know there's this terrible scandal? Statins do nothing for 98 out of 100 people who take them. And you go, well, Christ, given that about a quarter of the population takes statins, this shouldn't be news to anyone because... But that shouldn't have been frame. in the offer when it, when it was handed to them, right? We should all have been making informed choices with our patients. We yeah. should all have been communicating. And it's, it's not a shortcoming of individual doctors that we don't do that perfectly. It's a shortcoming of the whole way that we practice medicine. Doctors should be personal shoppers and risk communicators because that's the nature of the offer that we make to patients as doctors these days. It's, you know, we're not just going, hey, you're definitely going to die unless I drain that horrible axis. Yeah. Yeah. We're saying... Much like a life insurance salesman, you know, in exchange for a pretty low risk of reversible side effects, which frankly, if you get them, just stop the pill and they'll go away and it's up to you. And in exchange for the moderate hassle of having to remember to take a pill each day, I can offer you the following modest shift in your survival curve. If you're up for that, I am happy to prescribe. If you think it's a massive insult to your autonomy as a patient, then that's fine by me. But that doesn't sell newspapers,
1: so that's not going to get media attention.
0: Hang on, I mean, I'm not proposing that as a media story. I'm not proposing that as a a massive cultural shift in medicine. And actually, you know, it's really... So last week, The Lancet published this narrative review of the evidence on statins. So one objectionable thing in it, and to be clear, it was a perfectly good overview of the evidence, but it had two massive holes. So one was... It didn't talk about access to the underlying individual patient data at all, despite the fact that that is one of the great and, perf- and completely legitimate concerns yeah. that people have around statins. I personally don't think that there is a great hidden scandal around side effects. But that's but, part
1: of the story that comes up all the time. Yeah,
0: and so for as long as people are concerned about that, and there is very good evidence across the whole medical literature that there are often massive discrepancies between what's reported in academic journal articles about trials and what, what you find in the clinical study reports, the regulatory <coughs> findings, the underlying individual patient data. So it is a reasonable concern for people to have that they want to have access to the underlying individual patient data and that's one of the big foreground debates around statins. It's one of the great reasons why people don't trust the the summary data and so to write what claims to be an overview of it without uh, talking about that and without coming out and saying and by the way we have transparency. It's, It's bizarre. But the second thing that was really peculiar about it was the second sentence, which was, we are writing this so that patients and the public can make informed decisions about which statins to work best. And you read it, and this is an extremely technical, 12-page-long so academic not paper for in an academic journal. It's not written for patients at all. And furthermore, there is almost nothing that is. Right. So we invest all this money in in the pills, we invest all this money in the academic research, but we spend nothing at all on communicating that risk to patients and to face clinicians, into working out what's the best way of communicating evidence to people. And, you know, when you think about the giant corners of budget that get spent on patient and public involvement, public engagement, which is almost always these you know, really terrible. We put on a ballet where the people had the... Yeah, it's almost in a lot of cases, elements right? on the tutus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're not putting money into just the basics of like, yeah. how do you communicate risk to people so they make
1: informed choices? So we're, we're about to wind off. Um, I you oh, no, your guys getting, getting nervous. I know, oh, we're just getting going. Um, I want to take left field for one more question. Yeah. Um, so you're a great-grandson, a great-great-grandson of Henry Parks, I believe.
0: Well, yeah, so my dad went to the Henry Parks Museum a couple of decades ago, and on the door he said, you know, actually, I'm a great-great-grandson, it's every And the bloke on the door said, Too right, mate, you're half of Australia. Because <laughs> yeah, he did have 13 children. Yeah, he was quite the reproducer. Uh, so, I mean, I suspect you and me are probably both, one way or another, whether or not you know it. So, so, you know, Henry was a
1: great, I don't know if you know, a great educational reformist and a great medical reformist in Australia. He brought in a, an awful lot of things that, that we still bear the benefits of.
0: Is that right? So I So,
1: in, in that context... Yeah, we've got potential of having an anti-vaxxer elected as the president of the US. We've got outright climate deniers in the Senate in Australia now. Um, what do you think old Henry would make of the way the political sphere has kind of embraced pseudoscience in a lot of ways or, or ridden off the back of pseudoscience?
0: Well, I don't know about that,
1: but I think it tells you an awful
0: lot about the extent to which as a profession, the extent to which we've failed to engage constructively and meaningfully with the policy community and the public uh, that such a thing should even be possible and I think I, I mean I have to say it sounds creepy but I think the conversation is a really good chip in the right direction because it's fearlessly nerdy it's not it doesn't make yes. the sort of tedious yes. to be done now but you know all the money that gets spent on these public engagement things where it, it's it's almost like people are embarrassed to talk about the science and you just go well you know I think there's plenty of that you know w- what we really need is for it to be a legitimate part of scientists' activities to go out and, and engage in a in a meaningful way with the policy community and and also I think to be a little bit fearless because when you do it you get attacked. You, you know? have to be fearless, right? Not so fearless that you're confident to the point of saying yes, stupid. Yeah, not the confidence <laughs> of fools, but yeah, yeah, but to, yeah, yeah, and and you know I think a lot of people in science still feel a little bit afraid of stepping out of line. A lot of people in silence still feel like um, all they should do is the kind of activity that keeps their numbers up on the metrics, and that everything else is kind of tangential to that. Um, But, you know, that's uh, that way
1: lies. As you said.
0: Well, yeah.
1: I think uh, I'm getting the wind up, so I think that's probably a good place to leave it. Ben Goldinger, thanks very much for joining us. Hey, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, man.
0: listening to this Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. And if you like this podcast or have more ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series,
1: please leave a rating or review through iTunes.